Well, go ahead and open your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 5. We'll begin looking at some things there in Matthew chapter 5. Well, many people would agree that the apostles and prophets were inspired when they wrote Scripture, as I already just touched on very briefly this morning, that by the Holy Spirit's power, they were enabled to write the Word of God, to proclaim the Word of God as they preached, and they enjoyed a certain type of inspiration that no longer exists today. When we use that word inspired, it so often meant just uh, I was excited or something like that. I was passionate in a moment. But they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. There are many people who would agree to that and yet go on to say, but their original message is now lost. That the Word of God was inspired, the Bible was inspired, but how do we know what they were originally saying? That message is now lost. Some, of course, say that there were precious truths removed from the Bible itself. Well, I want to start today by considering the difference between two very, very, very different people. The first being Bart Ehrman. I mentioned him last week, and I said perhaps it was the only time he would be quoted from this pulpit, and here I am opening with another quote from him. But he is a Bible scholar. He is an atheist, and he knows a lot about the Bible. He was a Christian for a while, though, and this is what he said. I did my very best to hold on to my faith that the Bible was the inspired Word of God with no mistakes, and that lasted for about two years. I realized that, at the time, we had over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, and no two of them are exactly alike. The scribes were changing them, sometimes in big ways, but lots of times in little ways. And it finally occurred to me that if I really thought that God had inspired this text, if he went to the trouble of inspiring the text, why didn't he go to the trouble of preserving the text? Why did he allow scribes to change it? So you see, there was a lot at stake when it comes to this doctrine of preservation, at least in the life of this one scholar. If we don't believe that God preserved his word, then what are we doing here, right? If we believe the message is lost? Well, let me take you to someone who's very different than Bart Ehrman. His name is Jesus Christ. And you can read with me in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Look at what Jesus says about the preserved word of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now this is pretty fascinating because when Jesus quoted from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets as he just uh, presented them to us here, was he speaking from the original manuscripts from those prophets that he had in his hand at that time? No, he was not. Good job, Andy. No, he wasn't. In fact, he wasn't even quoting, he wasn't even quoting from the same language. They were often quoting from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the original Hebrew manuscripts. So much like our English Bibles today are reliant on copies from the original language and then translated into our language, at that time, Jesus and the apostles were often quoting from the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that relied on copies of the Old Testament. And notice what Jesus says here in verse 18. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
You think Jesus believed that God could preserve his word through copying the texts? Certainly did. This is from Tom Pennington, a great quote. He says, Jesus did not speak of the truthfulness of merely the ideas and thoughts in scriptures and scripture. He spoke of the letters and words in the written scripture. When he affirmed that neither the smallest letter nor the smallest stroke would pass away, he implied God had preserved his word up to that time in written form. By Jesus' day, of course, the original autographs had been lost. Instead, they relied, as we do, on copies that were ultimately made from those originals throughout generations. Yet Jesus consistently referred to those copies as the scripture. That's important to note. It's also important to note that later on in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 24, Jesus is quoting, uh, quoted as saying this, uh, an amazing statement that surely no other man could ever say in world history. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Who could say that but Jesus, right? Yeah. There have probably been many men who have attempted to say such a thing, but history has proven their words will pass away. Jesus says, my words will never pass away. That's amazing. Well, I want to talk about how we got to a preserved word first and then talk about what that means secondly. So let's talk about the transmission of the text, Scripture's circulation, how the Word of God got around to the communities that God desired to have it. And first, we need to think of Old Testament circulation. When we talk about the preservation of the Bible, we're, of course, talking about two different testaments. The Bible is not one testament. It's two separate testaments that are separated by hundreds of years. We touched on that a little bit last week. And so as we consider how the Old Testament got around, I just want to give you a few facts that you can gather, and, and you can look into these if you want. There's a lot, a lot of good material out there that I could point you to, a lot of good resources, if you wanted to understand more and more about how they made these copies. But let's start by thinking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. That was delivered to Israel through Moses. We know this. Moses was the mediator for Israel. He received revelation from God, and he gave that revelation to the people, those first five books of the Bible. But have you ever wondered, how did they capture those words? How did they capture what Moses said? If you ever tried to read those first five books of your Bible, there are a lot of words. There's a lot going on in those first five books. Well, they wrote these words on either animal skins or stone or clay or metal. Now, now, don't go into like caveman mode in your mind, hammer and chisel, you know, writing it out. They had special tools for these things, but stone was actually quite common. We know that when Moses received the tablets from God, they were on stone, right? Stone was a common medium in that day. And I want to show you two passages that talk about this, first being in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 27, and we'll look at verses 1 to 8. Perhaps you've not noticed in your Bible reading where they talk about their method of inscribing the Word of God and preserving the Word of God for future generations. We actually have several passages that speak of this. Deuteronomy 27, we'll start at verse 1, and look at what Moses and the people are doing here. Deuteronomy 27, verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. 
So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. Offer on it burnt offerings. Verse 7, And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. And verse 8, You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. That's quite the task. But again, don't go thinking hammer and chisel. They did have tools that they developed over time for these tasks. And turn over to the book of Joshua. It's the next book in your Bible. Joshua chapter 8, we'll see this same idea again. Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 32. They're writing words on stones. Joshua chapter 8, starting at verse 30, it says, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, what we just read. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. They did it. They did it. That's an amazing task. Aren't you glad that you're living today <laughs> and not back then? In fact, we're going to see over and over again reasons to be glad that we live today when we can communicate so much more easily than we could have back then. But stone wasn't the only material that was used. Like I mentioned, there was clay, there was metal. There are instances of metal being used in the Old Testament. And of course, animal skins became very popular using leather, using a special tool to engrave into leather the characters that they wanted to preserve. As there were prophets in Israel, poetry began to be written by David and Solomon and others. They would use most often animal skins, but even wood, even wood would be used as a, as a material. Think about in the book of Ezekiel, remember when he was told to get a couple of sticks and he was to write on the sticks to the houses of Israel and the house of Judah. That wasn't exceptionally rare in their time. In fact, tablets of wood tended to be somewhat common. In Isaiah chapter 30, we looked at this verse last week, but Isaiah 30 verse 8, it talks about a tablet. It says, now go, write it on a tablet, his prophecy, and he's not talking about an iPad, before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. They were to grab some sort of material that would serve as a tablet, most likely some cut of wood. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 2, you get the same idea. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. So the prophets were told, not just these prophecies, not just these revelations, but they were told specifically to inscribe their prophecies on certain material, material that they had available. So often people will look back at the Old Testament and say, well, that was just an oral history. They didn't write anything down. They just talked. Everybody just talked, talked, talked. It wasn't until way later 
that people started writing things down. And so we don't really know what Moses said. We don't know what any of those people thousands of years ago said. Well, the evidence from the text is that's not true. The law of Moses was inscribed on stones in Joshua's day. They began writing things down. They developed their own technology for writing. They developed even their own books. This Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles quoted from, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what did that rely on? It relied on all these copies that came down through thousands of years in Israel, and they translated into Greek the Hebrew Old Testament. So that's just a note on Old Testament circulation. So much to read about that, and if you're into that sort of stuff, I could point you to different resources where you could do more study. But let's talk about New Testament circulation. The context, of course, is quite a bit different than for the Old Testament prophets. Just consider this. Moses was living around 1400 B.C., and you have the writing of the Old Testament all the way up to Malachi's day, around 400. That's about a thousand years of active writing in Israel. Whereas in the New Testament, you have after the ascension of Christ, text starting to be written, and it was all done by 100 A.D. And so in a very short window, perhaps even just 50 years, all the New Testament texts were written. And right from the get-go, they were copied. They were copied immediately. Apostles and scribes wrote to specific audiences while they were on the move throughout the known world. They would be on their journeys. The Apostle Paul would be on one of his missionary journeys, and he would write a letter to a specific church. We also know that Paul ended up in prison. He would be in prison somewhere and write a letter to a specific church, and it would be carried along by a go-between who would get the letter to the church. And by this time, writing and copying became much more common. Once we get to the turn of the century, the millennium, the turn of time, going from B.C. to A.D., we have much more material available to people. There were more books that were being produced and kept. And initially, it was individual Christians and in these individual churches that were copying for circulation. Now, I, I used this reference in one of the sermons previous, but I, I think it's just so simple and powerful. When Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, he only wrote one letter. But you can read the opening of that letter. It says, to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Well, they were in different cities throughout this region called Galatia. And so the first church that got it would make a copy and off the letter would go. So copying happened very instantaneously. It happened very frequently as the New Testament was being produced. And there were two main materials that they would use in the New Testament times. So I know we're getting a little technical this morning, but hang with me. If you got a mint, pop a mint in, you'll be okay. Uh, there were two main materials that were used. The first is called parchment. And this is essentially animal skins. This is the leather. This is the idea of removing the fur or the hair and drying the skins, going through a very deliberate process to make it better for writing, using special tools to carve out a message on parchment. And this was pricey, just like our day. Leather is a little more expensive than, than other materials. And you only have a certain amount of animal skins around, right? And so it's not as abundant. What was more abundant, the second material that was often used was called papyrus, P-A-P-Y-R-U-S, papyrus. Now this was made from a plant. There were reeds that would grow in marshy areas and these reeds could be stripped and they could go through a process where you could end up with these strips of a reed that were interwoven. They were set perpendicular like a grid and they would dry out and they could write on the, the papyrus. And they could use ink, they could do a variety of methods to create these papyrus scrolls and books. Now, um, eventually, the papyrus was replaced by what's called a codex. 
The papyrus scroll was replaced by a codex. Papyrus scroll is a bunch of different of uh, papyrus, which are those reeds that are put together like a grid. They're glued together and they're put around a rod and scrolled or rolled up like a scroll. So you're familiar with that image in your head. But eventually they said, wait a second, if we adjust the method just a little bit, we can make it a little more durable and write on both sides and glue it and uh, bind it together on one end and then it can read like a, a really nice book. The book's kind of like we know today. So eventually the codex came to replace the papyrus scroll. And these books from scrolls uh, actually play a part in the way that we have divisions in the Bible. I found this to be quite fascinating. The scrolls were usually no longer than 35 feet. Okay, they, they have found some that are longer, but for traveling purposes and for weight purposes, they didn't want to make a scroll too big. You can just imagine carrying a wagon around with a big scroll wouldn't work very long, right? And so usually they weren't longer than 35 feet. And this is likely why Luke's account is broken up into two portions, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Because he was writing to the same per person for the same purpose. He was writing to Theophilus. He was investigating the life of Jesus and his followers. And it turns out, if you were to project back what we have of the book of Luke into scroll format, each one of those scrolls, Luke and the book of Acts, would be between 30 and 35 feet each. That's likely how we came to have two books, one called the Gospel of Luke and the other, the Acts of the Apostles. But as these scrolls evolved into what are known as codices, the codex, books, they were more well-preserved and they were able to get more content into one place. Now, for the first time ever, instead of just having the Gospel of Luke in a scroll that you would lug around, you could then get, because you're using both sides of the page, you could get Luke and Acts together. Or if you had access to the Gospel of Matthew early on in that first century, and the Book of Romans or something like that, you can start putting it all together in a codex, in a book. They could get much more content in there. But what I want you to think about this morning, what I really want you to dwell on this morning, is this process of copying. Now that you have a general idea of what kind of material they were working with and what kind of product they ended up with, I want you to think about the copying process because this is what's really key in the conversation of did God preserve his word? Did he preserve the actual original message? Well, the first thing you need to know is that copying was arduous. It was very, very difficult to copy back then because they didn't have stenographers with typewriters or computers. They had to either have someone read them the text while they were writing or they had to look at it themselves and write. They didn't have desks very often. Perhaps some people did, but it was actually quite common to sit crisscross applesauce on the ground and that's how they would write. That's a very difficult way to write, isn't it? But to have a desk is much easier. They weren't able to go on and turn on an electric powered or a battery powered lamp for their light. They had to use candles if it was dark. And you know what candles do? They sometimes start fires. <laughs> they sometimes get knocked over. And sometimes you run out. Sometimes they get dim and you're still trying to write. Very difficult process. They didn't have any knowledge of ergonomics, of course, as they were sitting there crisscross applesauce on the ground. And so they got tired. Hands would cramp, backs would cramp, legs would cramp. You know what that's like. Have you ever tried to sit down and copy the entire Gospel of Matthew? Well, if you tried to do that, sitting down on the ground like that, you get tired. Also, they had no climate control. In the summer, it was hot, and in the winter, it was cold. They weren't able to go into a climate-controlled room like this and to have peace and quiet and to 
have a, a comfortable environment in which they could write. And there are more elements that I want to bring up momentarily. But through church history, copying these New Testament letters really exploded. And we see it in the New Testament itself. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, toward the back of your Bible, before the book of Hebrews, you find 2 Timothy. And Paul actually talks about copies of what we can assume are the scriptures that were very important to him, that were portable, and that he wanted to have with him in the final days of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 13. 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 13. Writing to this young pastor, Paul says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now verse 13, check this out. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Now remember, parchments are that animal skin leather type material. But he had books and he had parchments that were very important to him that, again, we can only assume contained the Word of God, and he wanted to have them with him in the last days of his life. Very early on, even before the New Testament was finished being written, we see that writings were collected. They were put together in certain collections. And again, in 2 Peter, this is go forward toward the back of your Bible, past the book of Hebrews, 2 Peter chapter 3. We looked at this last week, but consider it again from perhaps a little bit of a different perspective. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 15. He tells the believers to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which, are, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Peter knew of the writings of Paul, the writings plural. He didn't just know of one letter. He knew of multiple letters of Paul. He knew that these people had access to those letters of Paul, and he knew that they were scripture. There were certain people who would try to twist Paul's teachings and pervert the scripture. He recognized the works of Paul as scripture, and he recognized that there was an early corpus of revelation that's called the New Testament. As we move forward in church history and we get to Constantine's day, some 200 years later, uh, 200 and not 300 years later almost, Constantine actually ordered that there be 50 copies of the New Testament made. 50 copies of perhaps the whole Bible, but at least the New Testament. And he said on each one of them, they need to be either three or four columns to a page. And professional scribes were hired. Professional scribes were brought in and they made up 50 copies that Constantine ordered. And there are two manuscripts that we have today that we think came from Constantine. One is Codex Sinaiticus. It was found near Sinai, so that's how they get those names, Codex Sinaiticus. And the other, Codex Vaticanus. And it's been kept in the Vatican. Well, these texts that were made in Constantine's day weren't just made up out of thin air. 
they had to access the manuscripts they had in their day and make these nice copies. If you ever see Codex Sinaiticus or Vaticanus, they're very nice. You can tell they were done by professional scribes and not somebody on the run under candlelight in a blizzard somewhere. Uh, they're, they're done very neatly, very nicely, and they're based off the text that they had up to that point in history. It was also during that time that chapters began to develop. Isn't it amazing that we have these chapters and verses in our Bibles that they didn't have then? I can't imagine trying to preach a message from the Bible without chapter and verse. Yeah, turn to 2 Peter toward the end-ish and look for the word, you know, whatever. Uh, they eventually came up with these address systems. And Eusebius, an early church historian, actually had a really complex one that involved a lot of math. And I'm glad we don't have that anymore. Uh, but instead, we can just say, turn to such and such. Well, chapters developed during that time and evolved into the system we have today. Well, all of this copying that was going on introduced a problem. And I read to you that problem at the beginning from that quote from Bart Ehrman. All of this copying produced what are known as variants. Because there is not one copy that we have of any text of the Bible that is free of errors or free of variants. Wouldn't it be quite interesting if we took the thousands of copies we have, which is just about 6,000 Greek manuscripts, that's just in Greek, just of the New Testament, 6,000, if we looked at all of them and they never ever disagreed with each other on a comma or a period or a capitalization or whether you say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, they all say the exact same thing in the exact same way all the way down to a T. What would you think of that if that were the case? That would be pretty interesting, wouldn't it? That every copyist was a perfect copyist. That would be quite astounding. Well, let me tell you, that's not the case. Actually, no copyist was a perfect copyist. And for some people, that can be a little jarring, but hang with me and consider what God is doing in preserving His Word. Consider what God has done in delivering the Bible to us today in our language. This word variant gets used a lot. Sometimes you'll actually see, I think even on Wikipedia right now, if you were to go to the Bible's page on Wikipedia, it will proudly tell you there are over 400,000 variants in the manuscripts that we have of the Bible. Over 400,000 in just the Greek New Testament alone. We don't even have 400,000 verses of the Greek New Testament. And there are 400,000 variants. Well, the question is, how many of them change the meaning, right? How many of those variants actually change the meaning? Let me give you an example. You might be reading through a few Greek manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark, for example, and it's talking about the life of Jesus. And one Greek manuscript that you're reading says, Jesus went. On and on it goes. It said Jesus. And the next one, it says, he went. <gasps> the Bible's been corrupted. One says Jesus and one says he. No, the Bible hasn't been corrupted. What you have is for some reason, and we, we'll talk about those reasons momentarily, one scribe said Jesus, one scribe said he. Was there any doubt in any copyist's mind who was being referenced? No. You go to the next manuscript and it says Jesus Christ. One says Jesus, one says he, and one says Jesus Christ. And you go to the fourth one and it says Christ Jesus. <gasps> Corruption utter manipulation of the text. Or you go to two more. One says the Lord. And another one says the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And another one says the Lord Christ Jesus. We just made seven variants out of one verse. That's how quickly the variants add up. One of them puts a period where another one puts a comma. That's a variant. And on and on and on and on and on it goes, and they add up. Well, we do have to ask the question, why were there variants at all? Why were there variants at all? Remember that scribes were human beings. Copyists were human beings. And nowhere does God say that he inspired copyists to be perfect. Not one place does it say that scribes would be absolutely perfect in everything they write. In fact, we still make mistakes today with all the advantages that we have. And we have a lot of advantages. In fact, our uh, pastor back in Missouri, I don't know if he wants me to tell this story because it shows just how OCD and academic he is. When he reads through books that go through a publishing system through multiple proofreaders, when he sits there and reads through books, he has a habit of writing on the back cover, inside the back cover, all the typos that he finds in the book. He marks the typo and says the page number. And that's people who are all in nice, climate-controlled offices somewhere, writing the text, being proofread over and over again, going through a publisher and making it to market. There are still typos, aren't there? It happens. It happens. My friend, Ken, he's in seminary. Some of you have gotten to know him through the podcast. Just recently, he was uh, writing a paper for seminary, and uh, he just had to get it done. And so he stayed up late, and he wrote it, and he was just going to edit it the next morning. And he sent me a message and said, I'm scared to look at my paper. (laughs) And you know why, right? You stay up late. You're trying to get something done quickly. You have to do it now. You're going to make mistakes. The best free throw shooter there's ever been in basketball is Steph Curry, still playing. 90.8% from the free throw line. 90.8. Every gym has the same height of hoop. Every gym has you 15 feet away from the hoop for a free throw. Every game they're using the same exact ball. That's regulation. Every free throw is uncontested. That's why it's called a free throw. And the best he can do is 90.8%. And he's the best one who's ever lived. Humans make mistakes. Humans aren't perfect. The same goes for copyists. James White has a challenge when he talks about this issue. Says, let's get 10 of us, whoever he's speaking to, let's get 10 of us together in a room. And all 10 of us will copy the Gospel of John word for word. And we'll all use the same English translation and just copy it into English, word for word. Do you know how many different copies of the Gospel of John we'll get at the end of that? 10. 10. When you count every punctuation mark, when you count every reversal of words or a verse you think you know, but you read it wrong or you skipped a line as you're looking over here and writing over there, you're going to get 10 different copies of the Gospel of John. Okay. Now, let that sink in for a moment. Don't get afraid. Let it sink in. Okay. I want you to also consider the conditions. Uh, We talked about this momentarily, but consider the conditions under which the copyists were writing. Bruce Metzger, a New Testament scholar, tells an amazing story of this scribe who actually talked about his process of copying. It was in the middle of a blizzard, and his ink froze, and his hands became numb. But we know that in the first century, second century, third, and even into the fourth, Christians were under great persecution, weren't they? You weren't supposed to have that book in the Roman Empire. They were trying everything they could to get that book out of society. And so what do you have to do? You fight through it. You fight through. And it could be really, really hot. You could be, you could be famished. It could, there could be a famine in the land. There could be all kinds of factors going into the copying process to create such variants. 
They had limited materials. They sometimes used abbreviations. They sometimes had to make assumptions by what the abbreviations were from the former copyists as they were making their own copy. And so variants appear over the course of time. So with that admission, as we confess that, as we admit that, how can we still maintain that God has indeed preserved the Bible? How could we ever hold to the doctrine of preservation? Or should we all just do like Bart Ehrman did and say, it's been changed too much. The message is gone. The message is long gone. So let's just all go be secular. Let's all make up our own revelation now. No, that's not what we're going to do. Here's how we get there, okay? I want you to consider this. The end result of this massive circulation is a reliable text. When you consider how God has preserved his word, the end result of such massive circulation of his word is a reliable text that's been passed down to us. He has initiated a system throughout history leading to our day that is more reliable than having just one manuscript or one original that has been kept for us. I want you to consider, if someone told you, hey, go over to Jerusalem, they have the original letter that Peter wrote, his first epistle. They have the original. It's in a glass case. It's been in a glass case for 2,000 years. Do you immediately jump to, I believe that without a doubt, or to suspicion? I jump to suspicion. <laughs> Good, Jackson. Good. Taught you well. <laughs> jump to suspicion because who's been watching that for 2,000 years, right? Who's had an eye on that? Who knows who's changed that? That means someone has really been in control because there's only one document. Someone can have a lot of control over one document, can't they? Well, this process of massive circulation actually leads to a reliable text. The more copies that we have of the text, the more confidence we can have in the text, even despite all the variants. No other ancient book, the Bible is an ancient book, right? Well, there's no other ancient book that comes close to the number of manuscripts that we have for the Bible. We talk in terms of thousands when we speak of manuscripts for the Bible. You don't really speak in thousands with any other book of antiquity. You want to read Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey, something like that, from a long time ago, you know, over 2,000 years ago? Go check out sometime how many copies we have of that, and you tell me if that's trustworthy or not. How do you know Homer actually wrote that? Well, you have to just kind of assume, and it's a matter of faith in a lot of ways. When it comes to the Bible, we have many more manuscripts. We have much more evidence that what we have is what the original church had, the first church, the early church had. When you consider the time gap between when the original was written and when the first copy that we have was written, with the Bible, it actually, if you look at the earliest copy we have of the Gospel of John that I'm going to show you here in a few minutes, that was just not even a full generation after the death of John. It's just a, a couple of decades until we start getting the manuscripts from the New Testament. You look at other works of antiquity, and sometimes it's hundreds of years before we have the first copy of what they wrote. And so nothing compares to the Bible when we consider ancient works. Nothing compares to the Bible when it comes to the manuscripts that we have. I want to highlight just a couple of important manuscripts, the one I just mentioned, actually. Manuscript P52, and we'll put it up on the screen. It's about the size of a credit card, so it's pretty tiny. And you can see it's symmetrical. This is the front and back of this tiny manuscript. 
It's got to be so exciting and so thrilling when archaeologists find this kind of stuff. Can you imagine seeing this? And if you knew Greek, you look at that and you say, that's the Gospel of John. That would be thrilling, absolutely thrilling. Well, this has gone through uh, the process of, of course, being translated and being dated. And it's pretty well agreed upon that this comes from the early 2nd century. So between 100 and 150 A.D., Gospel of John. Gospel of John was likely written between 80 and 90 A.D. So we're talking just a handful of decades. And we have this early manuscript. Now you might say, if that's the size of a credit card, what good does that do? <laughs> you can't get much on the, something the size of a, of a credit card. Well, remember, this is 2,000 years old. A lot of things have deteriorated over time. But there is something we can take away from this. Bruce, Bruce Metzger, I've mentioned him earlier, he wrote this about P52. Bruce Metzger said, Although the extent of the verses preserved is so slight, in one respect, this tiny scrap of papyrus possesses quite as much evidential value as would the complete codex. Just as Robinson Crusoe, seeing but a single footprint in the sand, concluded that another human being with two feet was present on the island with him, so P-52 proves the existence and use of the fourth gospel during the first half of the second century in a provincial town along the Nile, far removed from its traditional place of composition. The Apostle John was up in what's now Turkey writing that gospel, and this was found along the Nile in Egypt just a couple of decades later. That's pretty fascinating, wouldn't you say? That the word was getting around. And even though it is just a tiny scrap, it's the Gospel of John in Africa. How did that happen? The word was getting around. I want to show you another early manuscript. This is P72. This contains First and Second Peter and the book of Jude. This comes from the 3rd century, so the 200s. And this is a pretty amazing text. You see the, uh, the squiggles there. Isn't that interesting? Uh, doodling isn't just a modern invention, right? Um, but they would go through, and this is, this is a high-quality uh, picture. They can go through and show us pretty well what it looks like, and, and that would just be fascinating to stumble upon if you were an archaeologist. But it contains First and Second Peter and Jude. It's the manuscript known as P72. And as we consider manuscripts like this that we find, you've just seen two, and there are, again, thousands. There are thousands out there. But as you consider these, I want to show you uh, a chart that I made. And this may not be helpful. We'll see. But uh, there are three main areas, three main geographical areas, where we were finding texts, manuscripts, copies of the New Testament. So let's go ahead and pull up that next image there. Oh, boy, it looks bad from here. We'll see if this works. Um, <clears throat> so as you see on the bottom, you have original autographs. That's the time of the apostles and prophets writing what God inspired them to write. And as we go up on the screen, that's the process of time and thus the process of copying. There are three main textual families that we find manuscripts from, one being Alexandrian, the Alexandrian family. That comes from the area of Alexandria. What country? World geography? Egypt. Three people took geography in high school. Uh, Alexandria, Egypt. So that area, uh, northern Africa, really, is where that text family comes from. Then you have the Western text, which comes mainly from Europe. Okay, these are manuscripts we found in what is today, uh, you know, the countries in Europe. And then there's the Byzantine text, and we started finding those later on. Those copies were made later on, and that's in the Middle East. That's when you get over to what is known as Byzantium in world history. Well, go to the next one, if you would, Walker. 
our goal as we study the, these manuscripts is to get the earliest versions of all of them as possible. Those red circles are a little faint. Sorry about that. But there are red circles toward the bottom. And we want to prize, value, search for the earliest texts. Now, what's amazing is as you look across these three different geographical regions that are separated by thousands of miles, and you see through the course of history agreement on the same texts. You can pick up a Western text that covers some of Paul's letters and an Alexandrian text that cover the same letters from Paul, and you'll find agreement, even though they're thousands of miles apart. And they link back to a different starting point. As copies were made and they were sent out from the Middle East, they made their way to the edges of the Roman Empire very quickly. And over the course of time, we get more and more texts. That's what all those little branches are that that look goofy. Um, All those little branches as you go up, we have more and more texts. And you know what? The text was never manipulated. You don't find a text from 1200 AD of the Gospel of John that is just totally different, and you can tell that it's been manipulated from the Gospel of John we have from the second century. But there is this amazing work of preservation that God used in keeping His Word the same in different geographic locations and at different points in human history. And now to sum all this up, I've got a quote from James White, because this, he, the way he said it is just so perfect, and I want you to consider this reality in light of that information. James White says, By having the text of the New Testament explode across the known world, ending up in the far-flung corners of the Roman Empire in relatively short order, God protected that text from the one thing we, centuries and millennia later, could never detect, wholesale change of doctrine or theology by one particular man or group who had full control over the text at any one point in history. The people who want to disparage the Bible, the people that want to say, well, there were evil people out there who took things out of the Bible, they're assuming that there were people that had opportunity to do that. There was never once an opportunity for any one person or any one group to control the text of the Bible. The apostles wrote, they sent off their letters, and immediately the churches began to write. Immediately the churches made copies, and you are, you're finding copies of the same letters of Paul or John or Peter or Luke. You're finding them in different areas that are separated by thousands of miles over all kinds of, uh, of different points in history, and the message is preserved. The message is the same. You find the overall message protected by God all the way to our day. And then when you start studying the early church fathers, the Greek fathers of the early church, their works early on in the second century, I talked about them last week, but there are many that we could look at where they're quoting the New Testament. We don't have the manuscripts they were copying from, but we have what they wrote, and they were speaking of the same New Testament that you have today. They were quoting the same verses that you read today. Early on, God was getting his word out and he was preserving his word. The message has been preserved. How many of those variants change the meaning? Not many at all. Not many at all. When you consider the number of manuscripts there have been, again, just in Greek, we have about 6,000 manuscripts, you're going to have many variants. You're going to have what appear to be contradictions, even though it's 99% of the time a punctuation difference or something to that effect. Those variants will add up, but that's actually a great advantage. 
Dr. A.T. Robertson says that meaningful variants are actually a thousandth part of the overall text. None of the variants alter the overall message of the Bible. And so when someone says, the Bible has been corrupted, raise your hand if you've heard this. I want to make sure you guys are still awake. As the, if the Bible's been corrupted, raise your hand. You've heard it? Okay. Here's what I want you to do next time you hear it, because if you heard it once, you'll probably hear it again. If someone says that, say, show me. Because here's the great advantage you have, dear Christian. You have a bunch of manuscripts on your side. You have a, a textual tradition going all the way back to the first century from different geographical regions discovered at different points in history where if someone is saying the Bible's been corrupted, say, substantiate that claim. What passage? What book? Because we have a lot of manuscripts and we can look and we can compare. Allegations of corruption must be specific. If someone's going to say plain and precious things were taken from the Bible, you better tell me what they are. Tell me. Show me. Because I believe God has preserved his word. And God has given us a way of testing such accusations. When you have all of these manuscripts, any sort of change in doctrine, any sort of change in narrative, any sort of altering of the text actually ends up sticking out like a sore thumb. Going back to the ten of us, whoever the ten of us are, writing the Gospel of John together as we're doing that, we all agreed we would end up with ten different, quote-unquote, Gospels of John. But how many of those errors would all ten of us make the same mistake on? How many of those commas would it turn out, well, all ten of us somehow missed that comma? Extremely unlikely. The one who missed the comma would stand out from the other nine. We would look at the other nine and say, well, there must be a comma there because they caught it and Joe didn't. Joe was sleepy that day, right? And she was making that copy. And so any kind of variant actually ends up sticking out like a sore thumb. That's why it's really important to know where you got your Bible and how to answer these accusations. All accusations of corruption are easily investigated because of the number of manuscripts that we have. So don't be afraid of someone saying the Bible's been corrupted. Just say, show me, show me. I'm from the show me state. I can say that, right? Show me, prove it. Let's talk about it. So yes, there are variants in the text that have been preserved through history. Yes, and that's tough to work through that. But here's the good news. The original message has also been preserved through history. We have so many manuscripts that as we look at the grand scope of what God has given his church, it's really a gift of grace. As we look at that grand scope, we can say God has preserved his word. And I want to close today by talking about God's purpose to preserve his word. I want to look at three passages. You can go ahead and turn to Psalm 119 with me. Psalm 119, starting at verse 88. The one who created all things, the one who inspired Scripture, by his power, his word is preserved. By God's power, don't look at the screen yet, I'm not there yet. Don't look at the screen. By God's power, his word is preserved. This is what you have to hold on to when it comes to your theology of who God is. Because what kind of God is it who is powerful enough to create everything that we have in the universe inspire men to write exactly what he wanted them to write, but then when it comes to preserving, his hands are tied. He can't do it. It's just, it's all open to any kind of corruption that anybody wants to introduce to the text. No. Our God is not just powerful enough to create all things, not just powerful enough to inspire his word. Our God is powerful enough, big enough to preserve his word. Okay? He's faithful. 
He will not leave us without the instruction we desperately need. He's not going to leave us in the dark. He's going to give us what we need. Okay, Psalm 119. You can look now. Psalm 119, starting at verse 88. The psalmist says, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generation. God's mouth has a testimony. Did you catch that in verse 88? The psalmist says that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. His word is settled forever in heaven. Isn't that good? Our God is not subject to change, altering terms on the fly. He's faithful, and what he has said, he will keep. Isaiah chapter 40, this is what Jerry read for us at the start of the service today. One of the most famous passages about the preservation of the word of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 6. It says, A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Here's the promise. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Unlike flowers, unlike grass, unlike human beings ourselves, God's word cannot fail. God's word cannot die. God's word cannot be stopped. God's word will not be replaced. God's word is settled forever in heaven. It is preserved once for all. He has a purpose for his word, and he makes sure that purpose comes to fruition. He has a plan that cannot be thwarted. His word is his. And you think God is going to let some grubby little sinners get their fingers into his stuff and mess it up? We see that, of course, in our world through the fall, but God's going to make that right, isn't he? And in the meantime, he's preserving his word for that generation. He's calling out of darkness and into his kingdom. And then finally, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, he's actually quoting this Isaiah passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 23. 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. Look at how he applies the message of Isaiah. 1 Peter 1, 23. For you, Christians, have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. You see what's at stake if God's word isn't permanent? If God's word isn't preserved? See what's at stake here? Your salvation is at stake. Your hope as a Christian is at stake. You were born again through the living and enduring word of God. And it's the word that was preached to you. If the gospel got lost, if the word of God got lost, you're lost. Your salvation is on the line in this conversation. It's critical that you understand the importance of the preservation of the word of God. So what's our takeaway today? 
How does this impact your life and even your personal ministry? Well, God has graced us with much evidence, and this is his grace. Did we deserve all of those manuscripts that we found? And again, that's just Greek. We could get into Latin and other languages too. Do we deserve all of these manuscripts and all this evidence for his word? Well, no. He, he could have not given us all that evidence, but he did. Even so, though we have all this evidence, it's still a matter of faith, isn't it? There's still a gap between uh, the evidence that we have and us. You have to believe. It is a matter of faith. You have to put your trust in God that he would speak and preserve his word. And it's important and good to say this is a matter of faith. Let's not pretend that this is a, a faithless venture, just as real as we're sitting here today. There is an element of faith. But is it, is it a reasonable faith? Is it a reasonable confidence? The answer to that is yes. It's not a reasonless or an unreasonable faith. Can you read from the Bible that you hold in your hand today and declare this is the Word of God? Yes. Yes, you can. You absolutely can. Remember back at the beginning of the message, hours ago, when uh, Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament. He was quoting a translation that was based on copies. And he said it's Scripture. You can hold your translation that's been based on copies and declare this is Scripture. This is the Word of God. You can have great confidence in the Bible. I've said before that, I think I mentioned it in the first message, that inspiration of the text, the way God inspired writers, is a lot like salvation in that they were making real choices. They were writing things they wanted to write. But this was God's sovereignty that brought this about, wasn't it? It's all because of God's sovereignty through human choices. Well, I think that the preservation of the text, the fact that he has kept it for us today, it's a lot like sanctification. If inspiration is kind of like salvation, then preservation is kind of like sanctification in that we see his faithfulness through human choices. As you live this life and you make different choices with your life, God is faithful, isn't he? He's bringing you through. You are just as saved today as you were yesterday, and you'll be just as saved tomorrow as you are today, right? He is faithful despite the messiness of your life. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> God is faithful in your sanctification. He is faithful in preserving his word. Church history is messy. World history is messy. But he is faithful. He has spoken, and he has promised, and he has kept his word for us today. He's faithful to us and you better believe he is faithful to his own word. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you because you are the true and living God, the only one who could do this amazing work of giving humankind a book and preserving it and keeping it despite all the efforts of man to destroy it. You have proven yourself faithful and strong. And God, we worship you alone through this text you've given us. We come to know you. We come to understand who we are. We come to understand more and more of this salvation that's been applied to us through the finished work of Christ. And God, we love you. Thank you so much for your grace in giving us not only salvation, but your word. It is not owed to us. We don't deserve it, but you have graced us with it. It is a gift out of your kindness and your love for your people. Thank you. 
And we ask that this word would revolutionize our thinking day by day, that we would be renewed in our minds by the word of God, that as your spirit works through your word, we would become more and more like Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.